0: All right. One, two, three, cake. Cake. Yeah. I promise it's coming. Hi, this is Catherine Lasota, host of LIC Reading Series, a monthly event that I founded at LIC Bar in Long Island City, Queens in April 2015. This week on the podcast, we are going back to our one-year anniversary event on April 12th, 2016, which featured Alexander Chi, Jonathan Lee, and Natalie Harnett. On the last episode of our podcast you heard the readings from that event and on this episode you're going to hear the panel discussion. You're also going to hear from our magic silver box which we were using even way back on our first anniversary. With the magic silver box I asked audience members to put questions in the box and if I ask that question during the panel discussion that audience member wins a prize. So let's jump on into LIC Bar where we are celebrating our one-year anniversary on April 12th 2016. With Alexander Chi, Jonathan Lee, and Natalie Harnett. So I'm going to ask some questions of of our our readers, and then we're going to jump into that magic silver box, and you just might win an awesome prize. Um, actually, uh, uh, what's interesting, and, and that you guys are all talking about this at the intermission, and it's something that I wanted to ask you about. That each of your novels does take place in a distinct time period in a place and you could call them historical novels each of them so i wonder if if uh, if you could each speak to that and how you went about creating that sense of place and how important is the sense of place for you in a novel and how you incorporated that into the fabric of the story as you wrote it Um, and any one of you can start that whoever feels Like they want to jump in with it. I'll
1: I'll jump in. Go for it, Natalie. Um, I always start with a sense of place. And so with this novel, I actually knew that I wanted to set it in this town of Carbondale, Pennsylvania. And it's just because I like, you know, I like starting with a sense of place. And it's always, I've always been told that my talent as a writer is doing description of natural areas. And at the time, I I didn't know of the fire that took place in that town. And so as I was just, wanting to set it in that town, I was trying to think of things I knew about that area, and I remembered my grandfather's neighbor, my grandfather lived in that area of Pennsylvania, and I remembered his neighbor telling me about these fires in Scranton, which was very near to where this um, novelist set, about these fires um, that made the floors of the houses too hot to walk on. I thought, wow, you know, what an image, what a metaphor, and I've got to get that into my book somehow. So then I just planted on this idea that I would have, I knew I wanted to tell it from this young girl's perspective, and I knew it would be a family story, and I thought, let me just stick them in one of these Scranton fire homes in the beginning, and then I will move them to this town of Carbondale, um, but as I went to research those Scranton fires, i found out hardly anything about them. And as I was doing more and more research, I finally found out about this um, incredible fire that took place in the town, you know, that I was just setting the story in. And so I actually had almost a full draft by that time. I scrapped the draft and I rewrote it structuring. I first outlined the dig out. What they did was they actually dug this fire out. And so I outlined the dig out of that fire and then I matched step-by-step step what was happening with the family to what was going on with that dig out. So it actually ultimately helped me um, create a much stronger structure for the novel. It was just, you know, by accident, sort of.
0: Wow. Mm-hmm. Set that draft on fire. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I had a, um, a kind of, I, I'd done this, one initial research trip to Paris in an attempt at understanding what was happening there and realized pretty quickly that despite how much of Paris is very ancient and is layered upon even more ancient parts of it, that there was a way in which what I was after had had vanished and was, and was not really anywhere I could see, quote unquote, um, in particular the Tuileries. And so when I uh, got back from the trip, At that time, I was living in Rochester, New York, as what I call a disgruntled faculty spouse. Um, uh, (laughs) Disgruntled because we were in Rochester. Um, uh, But there was this amazing library at the University of Rochester, and there I found this, uh, this memoir by a governess, a British governess who had lived inside the Tuileries during this period. And who just dished the dirt on the empress um <laughs> and it was called a prisoner of the tuileries uh, it was her autobiography and um and she had been taking care of the children for the duke and duchess de Tusher, and she uh she was the one who knew how how badly it had gone for the empress in a sense and was willing to say so um in print. So that shortly after I read that, I then also that had the details about the the dumb waiter, um, which I just thought was the most incredibly fascinating thing I'd heard about the Empress. Mm-hmm. Well, the Empress is a pretty interesting character on her own, but um, uh, I that helped particularly you know we think of the tuileries now as as a garden but it was a palace before that um and uh, and the story of how it went from the one to the other you know is uh is an important story so that's that's i guess how part that's when i that was my entry into the history of the period and then through that, I I found like everything else that I needed, but that was the that was the break in the wall.
0: Where where did your wall break, Jonathan?
3: Mine? yeah. Um, I didn't actually know there were going to be like serious literary questions. I thought it was going to be like, yeah. what's your favorite cheese? Or something. <laughs> we'll we'll get there. All we'll get there for. What uh, is your favorite cheese? Manchego. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> um. But uh, sense of place, yeah. I guess like in my real life, I don't have much of a sense of place. <laughs> Hence, why I like needed a lot of guidance to get here. <laughs> and um, you know, I'm kind of always missing things, even when I'm just looking at the map, trying to trying to find a place. And I'm when I'm writing, I'm not really attracted to a sort of um, sense of atmosphere around geography in the way that I think you are, and in, in mm-hmm. the you know the beautiful bit you read. I am interested in skewing reality a little bit, which is one of the things I really enjoyed about Alexander's excellent book, Um, the sense of somewhere being a a ghost place, like not quite a real representation. Mm. And when I started to write about Brighton in the 1980s, I kind of couldn't resist weaving in details of things I'd loved from reading, like Graham Greene's Brighton of the 60s and things like that. Um, And I just kind of accepted in the end that it wasn't going to be Brighton England 1984 it was going to be some other version of it that I'd kind of created and adopted from from reading other books as well uh but I did love this idea of the hotel as the setting like I I didn't grow up in Brighton but um would go there a lot of weekends my parents were obsessed with like driving down to Brighton and us sitting on the rocky beach and eating uh like marmalade sandwiches, as the wind was like whipping it at us like an English version of a holiday <laughs> and um and the grand hotel is this big like white wedding cake of a building facing out onto the English channel. You can't miss it you can't miss it from the uh from the beach and to hear that there was a bombing that took place there in nineteen eighty four was really shocking at the time and interested me and then the more I looked into it. And the more my dad told me about it as a teenager, you know, I found out that the IRA had, had bombed the hotel to try and kill Margaret Thatcher, but that they had arrived at the hotel under a false name and taken a room, room 629, uh, 26 days and six hours before the bomb went off and they planted it on this long delay timer under the bath, room 629. And they avoided detection that way. So all the kind of conservative party security arrived later. Um, and that was fascinating to me because I think hotels are, the, the, you know, these sites of everything such a carefully curated thing within the space of a hotel, like where a flower vase is, like where the cutlery is on a table. And the idea of this guy coming in under a false name, kind of fictionalizing himself with a bag of explosives over his shoulder was was just really fascinating to me. Mm.
0: Is, is your own home that carefully laid out as a hotel?
3: Unfortunately not, no.
0: <laughs> so you probably won't get bombed.
3: I probably, that, yeah. I think that's how terrorists <laughs> work, so.
0: Yeah. Uh, we figured out terrorists here at the LIC Reading yeah. Series. You're welcome. Um, Natalie, you talked about uh, having this draft that you that you scrapped and... and um, Alex, you mentioned when you read your piece, that's now I think page 151 or something, it was the original beginning. I wonder if if you could each speak just a little bit to any false starts as you started these novels or how many drafts you went through or um, maybe the the amount that did change in a revision process for you. Uh, I mean, it was, and also, I know it was 15 years in the development of Queen of the Night for example, so... But I, I know that Natalie... Yeah, just in
2: the one computer that I had the longest during that period, if you type the word queen into the search bar, like 670 documents come up. Know, <laughs> That's terrifying. No one should ever have that. As a, so, um, uh, yeah, uh, I guess... It's very difficult to write about a character... Who is deeply in denial about who she is. So, I guess, you know, the false starts were I started the novel in 1999, and then everybody was so excited about it that it seemed to be dooming my actual first novel's chances of getting published. (laughs) So, out of spite, I gave up on it and published the first novel. (laughs) Um, I just you know i just i uh i put it aside for a period of uh four years i think total um I returned to it in two thousand four and I realized that the part that I had written was actually probably the end mm. of the novel and it is now basically the last thirty pages mm. And so I started writing other pages. Uh, wrote about 90 pages or so, and then I thought, well, that's not it. I put that aside, and then I wrote another 90 or so, and I thought again, this seems like a mistake. And then I, and then I wrote those Tuileries passages and got like 75 pages. And then I, I, ha- I had a, at that point a, a file of like what I called the scrap and I looked at the scrap file and there was, there was like 300 pages in it and the novel file was like 75 pages. And I thought, mm-hmm. you have something to think about. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and that's when I realized that all of those rejected pages were these lives that she had cast off and that it was, a the, the whole thing was, a was the book. So, mm. um, so, yeah.
0: It's a lot of mm. files. Just, yeah. It's,
2: um, I don't recommend it as a process. No one should, <laughs> no one should do what I did. Um, I'm still, I'm, I, for a while I was like, I'm not sure it was worth it. Now I'm sort of, you it was probably going to work out okay that I did that. But anyway, um, that's what happened.
1: Well, I know for me, um, I remember I had a very hard time getting the young girl's voice. And I had actually never written in first person before. And that was because a college professor had told me that third person was just better. And I bought into that. Mm -hmm. And then I finally (laughs) said, you know what? I really want to do first person. And so I don't know know, if I struggled so hard because I'd never done first person before. But as I've been thinking about it, at the time that I started the book, my This is my debut, but it's not my first novel that I've written. At the time that I was starting that book, my previous novel was on submission and just getting rejections, and so, I mean, it was just such a hard time, you know, so I think that's probably really the reason why I struggled so hard with that voice. Once I had that voice, she just started writing herself, and um, I had it totally, the draft that I threw out was just a totally different story where the girl... Um, becomes a healer like her auntie, and she's doing these healings around the town. It was just a completely different book. Um, But as I was, uh, you know, working on finishing the draft, I got pregnant, and that just put a complete panic into me i was so afraid that that was just the end of my writing
0: isn't pregnancy terrifying
1: (laughs) oh it was so terrifying so i went that's when i went i said i'm going to finish at least the research for this book and i went to the carbondale historical society that's where i found out about the fire and i remember just sitting there thinking oh my god you know i knew i had to tell the story of that fire and i knew that meant throwing out that whole draft but, you know, ultimately getting pregnant and then I wrote a lot of that book holding my baby in one arm, you know, and then just handwriting and then just get finding the time somewhere along the line to get it into the computer. Um, I think I actually ultimately wrote a lot more than I ever would have otherwise, you know, and it really it took me about four and a half years, um, you know, but that I, I can't even count the amount of drafts I did. I have no idea, you know, It was mm. a lot of drafts, you know, but once I settled on that fire, Um, That again, that just really helped the structure.
0: So, what I'm hearing is having the baby made you
2: productive.
1: Yes, (laughs) extremely. Yes, extremely productive.
2: I I have a friend who will back that up. Really? Yeah, Christine Lee. Oh yeah. Yeah, she just had a two book deal with Harper Collins and a novel and a memoir and and that piece that came out today. She was like, she's like, and anyway, I've written more since I gave birth. So.
0: I love to hear that. Let's hear more stories about more productivity after having children. People
2: have talked about like having their cats on their laps. Right. Them stay Wait, are you ride. comparing
0: babies to cats? In this one <laughs> instance. That's cool. So I already have a cat. I'm totally ready. Yes,
1: yeah. I have a cat too and I was just... Did a picture of the cat on my lap as I'm at the computer, and it does absolutely keep me yeah. right there. Yep. <laughs> Seat in the
0: chair. Jonathan pets. Uh, no, no pets.
3: <laughs> that must have been why it was so fucking hard. the Lack of, <laughs> lack of cats. Um, I totally relate to the to the idea of uh, like I feel like it's something that no one ever tells you when you're starting out as a writer that. Whatever you're wedded to as the opening of your novel will almost certainly not end up being the opening. <laughs> and it's a strange thing that you you need to find that out for yourself and get to some stage in the process where you're like, this is not this is not where it begins. This is either something that needs to be cut altogether or be put on page 125 or wherever it is. Um, I I started my novel thinking that. I was going to have like 50 pages about the build up to the bombing, about this 26 days, six hour period where the bomb had been planted and before it went off and that it was going to be about the ordinary lives of the people in the hotel during that period. So like the deputy general manager diving with his daughter, that that kind of thing. Uh, and that, that was going to be a short kind of prelude. And that then the bomb was going to go off and I was going to examine the repercussions And then, uh, it just grew and grew and grew to the extent that like three and a half years later, I still hadn't made it to the bomb (laughs) (laughs) and, and I kind of realized it was self-fulfilling, but I realized that that's what I was interested in writing about, Mm. like the before and that most disaster narratives started with the moment of, of impact, like the the kind of the splash and, um and then looked at things that that came after, but that what I wanted to do was look at what I think, you know, it's like justifying afterwards, but to look at the everydayness of the lives before history intruded and this Mm. disruption happened. And that kind of became the point of it, but I had no idea of that at the beginning.
0: Mm. I love that discovery of what you're writing about as, as you write it.
3: Um, I'm
0: going to move, to the silver box to see who's gonna win our awesome prizes tonight. Get an applause, light applause on the silver <laughs> box. Um, while, while I retrieve the silver box, though, I just real quick, uh, Jonathan, could you share, I know you have a really interesting story because your book is being translated right now, I believe, um, so that people who do not read English can enjoy it, and I think that you had a really interesting story with your German translator recently,
3: uh oh, yeah, I wrote I wrote it, yeah. this piece for Lit Hub. Um Yeah, that that just got me thinking about the the life of books even when you think that your book is finished. Like I'd been reading this Joy Williams essay about how your book is never really finished, that you just get sick of it and have to publish it because <laughs> you can't live with it anymore. Um <laughs> And then at the same time, I was like finally reading the book of Disquiet, the Fernando Pessoa book that isn't really a book and is just like a series of fragments published under all these different names. Um, and so I was thinking about like unfinishedness and all the rest of it. And then I had this long, I had this email arrive in my inbox uh, one day a few weeks ago, which began, "Hello, I am Ursula, your German translator." <laughs> And then the next line was uh, something like, uh, I have been translating High Dive for the German market. Uh, As you can imagine, this is a highly satisfying task, but also a highly frustrating one. (laughs) (laughs) And and it went on and it had like a document attached, which she said were her initial queries on the first 50 pages of the book so i opened it up and um a 15 page document emerged <laughs> on my screen and uh, and it had things like like in the dialogue in the first part of the book because yeah. part of it's set in belfast there was like this uh like the first query was about this fragment of dialogue where a character says to another like do you have a surname or is it or is it like a share ball tickler kind of situation um and Isn't so a German I, for that? Yeah, and so I found myself replying, saying, "Well, you know, it's it's kind of the point of it is it doesn't mean anything, but it's a reference to uh, the the pop popular big head actress and singer Cher and the fact she only had one name." Uh, and it went on and on. And then like one of one of the queries said, uh, it was about half a line in which I described a minor character called Mister Easymuth, a teacher. I'd said that it was important to him to feel misunderstood. And the German translator said, I have about 12 possibilities for the word misunderstood.
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs> and she listed some of it, And it's just like, there's no point to the anecdote other than I ended up writing this whole essay about how if there's 12 words even for the word misunderstood for a character who appears for five lines in the book, your book is never going to be over. <laughs> that was that was all it was. Was that just that was, to buy you time while you got your yeah? Papers no, but I love that, it? but
0: I love hearing about your German translator. Okay. So, <laughs> I think you guys need to meet someday, just to like You yeah. have an image of what she
3: looks like. Well, I am ashamed to say that I Google image search. because
1: like, uh.
3: because <laughs> we were having this you know this long correspondence, and I just had a certain image which was. Um, She's in her 60s. She's a very established (laughs) Translator, You're in good hands. All right, guys, we're gonna go,
0: and the first question, um, in honor of the anniversary, everyone who gets a prize is also going to get a handful of Starburst. (laughs) Right? Come on. Mm. Uh, Mm. Yay. Yay. So because Starburst are uh, lovely fruit flavors, and I swear they're not a sponsor of us, this question is going to go to the author who uh, I'm thinking of a fruit. Please guess the fruit I'm thinking of, and whoever is closest will get this first question. <laughs>
3: Kiwi, kumquat,
1: banana, mm, okay, strawberry. No, you
0: can <laughs> How long does it go for? Well, I think, I think because Jonathan is cheating and answering more than once, I'm going to give it to Alexander. It was great. <laughs> it's round, right? It's close me. Uh-huh. Okay. So you're going to get this question, and whoever asked this question will get a drink ticket and a handful of Starburst. All right, guys. Applause already. Okay. Okay. What advice would you give to your high school self? Mm-hmm. Who asked this question? Awesome. You get Starburst and a free drink.
2: Uh let's see. <laughs> Just
0: one piece of the yeah, quit somewhere. smoking earlier. <laughs>
2: um remember that your dentist was a drunk and that you probably need to find one who's sober. <laughs> Um, (laughs) therapy will be more helpful than you think don't spend all that money (laughs) and what else oh and when someone asks you at the age of 21 to write a novella You should do that. Because they really would have bought it. A
0: lot of wisdom. (laughs) I don't even know what the best part of that wisdom is. All right, guys. That was awesome. Um, We're going to have one more individual question. So Natalie and Jonathan have to fight it out for the individual question. (sighs) Brutal. (laughs) I'm going to give it to you with trivia. Whoever can get this trivia question is going to get um, tell me the book that. Uh, the, excuse me. Tell me the the story that's being referenced here. Are you ready? Yeah. Mm-hmm. They, I think if they just raise their. They can. They go. Ooh ooh. Okay. Okay. <laughs> ready? A talkative grandmother and an unfortunate road trip feature in this much <laughs> anthologized. O'Connor story. <laughs>
3: uh, I need the title of the story. I need the title
0: of the story, please. It's a Plenary O'Connor story.
1: I'm going with the good man, it's hard to find. And the win goes
0: to Natalie. All oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> <You knew that. laughs> so, uh, next, next winner here gets some Starburst and a gift certificate to the Astoria Bookshop. Nice. Right. Good in store only, guys. But you should go because it's an amazing bookstore in Astoria, just off the Broadway stop. All right, let's see you the looking. winner is. Mm. Kind of related to our, our process questions here. The question is it's it's it has a, a map, a diagram on it. So I'm gonna try my best to uh to relay that to you. Um like a choose your own adventure, if you will did you know the ending of your novel when you started writing if yes did it change if no when did you know the ending of your story who asked that
2: Steve.
0: You, this is Dan. for me. Like, yeah, you okay, won the trivia. <laughs> okay,
1: <laughs> um, I did know the ending. I do try and have an outline before I start. Um, that ending did change, and it changed multiple times. My agent was not happy with it, so we worked on that. I don't. I can't even remember all the different endings that we came up with um, until we finally settled on the one, and then that one did stay.
0: Awesome outline. Sweet. Wow. Intense. Um, all right. The uh, the next three questions are going to be rapid fire questions that are for all three of our writers, and they're our final three questions of the night. But while we usually have prizes donated from local Queens businesses tonight for the one year anniversary, we're having special donated from your publishers, guys. They each That's gave us fine. one of your books.
1: Nice. All right. What? <laughs> what? <laughs>
0: all right. First question is going to get "Copy Pile of Ground" by Natalie Harnett. Let's see who it is. This is good. All right, rapid fire, guys, rapid fire time. For Starburst and the book, when writing about real places or historical events, which you can all speak to, at what point do you feel comfortable to stop researching and start just fucking writing? Who asked this question? Yes! (laughs)
3: Rapid fire,
0: rapid fire. When do you when do you when do you stop the research and start the writing?
3: It's a really good question. Uh, I I became a little bit obsessed with the research for for High Dive, and I was going to Brighton a lot. I was traveling down to the coast and and then like the fact that I moved to New York um, kind of put an end to the research. (laughs) And I was uh, I was sad about that for a while, but I was really grateful in the end. I it got to the stage where I'd absorbed a lot of the details, and I was just not admitting to myself that I just needed to leave research behind and let imagination and intuition take flight. And um, and it was kind of helpful being away from the place, like not being able to keep wandering around the hotel and talking to staff and stuff.
1: I you know I find it doesn't even take that much research. That I'm always amazed by how little research you actually need to start the novel um you know and you only need a few details really you know to set a scene and so i actually do um you know i would say probably very little research um compared to what a lot of other people would want to do because i do find it so tempting to just keep and keep doing it and then you get bogged down in that and it's very hard for me anyway you know to keep focused on the story then
2: um i was paralyzed because i was writing about opera and french history and people who like those things are insane people on the internet. <laughs> insane people on the internet, as well as in other places. But um, so uh, but I, basically, I came up with a process where by which, like, if I got to a place in the reading where I thought, well, if this is true and this is true, then this is true, like a third thing that I imagined, that was usually where I was like, okay, stop, go write that and then and then i would write until i didn't have any more ideas and then i would go back to the research
0: mm. awesome thanks guys all right next question It's gonna get a copy of this orange beauty high dive by jonathan lee you guys rapid fire <laughs> is there a book that you've read at least three times why do you keep going back to it? Who asked this question? Awesome <laughs> question. Nice question. Anyone you can start with that.
3: I I have a there's a book called, by Javier Marías, a Spanish novelist, called Our Heart So White. And uh, I think it's kinda of endlessly fascinating. It has this this like twisty opening, which is like the most unwelcoming, like whatever the opposite of a welcome doormat is for a reader. (laughs) This is just like broken glass on the floor. Like it's a difficult novel to get into, Mm -hmm. but there's just something. So um, it's just one of those books, like I always read with a pencil and I've just underlined so many sentences in that book. And I don't know quite how he does it. So I just keep, keep going back to the book whenever I get stuck with anything because I feel like he's the kind of writer who crams a hundred different ideas in and there's always something that inspires me in there
1: i've read the death of ivan ilyich i don't know how many times and i've went through a period where i read it every single night and you know i don't i think it's something very morbid in me that keeps (laughs) returning to it i'm glad i finally put it to the side though it's still on my nightstand you know and i'm not sure uh you know i'm not sure what my fascination is except that the writing is phenomenal you know and it's something if i find it very satisfying and maybe it is because i do have this incredible fear of death you know that i don't know that i like revisiting this man's you know life and and just it's the, such an amazing story such an amazing and the way story it shifts
3: like, perspective at the end yeah. and you're suddenly right inside his head as he's suffering yeah. it's just but I don't
1: I think I probably need therapy to figure out why <laughs> I keep revisiting that. But that is one I've gone back to many, many times.
2: Gene Reese's Voyage in the Dark. Was a novel that I kept buying, actually, also, and not just rereading it, but also like I have three copies of it as if I need extras. Um, uh, and it was a voice that actually helped me figure out that voice or stay close to that voice periodically as I, uh, as I kept on with the book. Um, there's a couple others. Um, uh, the, the <laughs> there's a trilogy um, by a science fiction writer named Julian May. Sorry, it's a tetralogy. Uh, and I read it every summer for a while. Um, it's a fantastic... Uh It's, if you like science fiction, it's, it's called the Pliocene Epoch, E-P-O-C-H. And, and then there's um, uh, James Baldwin, Giovanni's Room, and uh, Never Let Me Go by Kazuo Ishiguro, which I reread all the time because I teach it. But I, I, I teach it because it's Amazing to teach, and it's also wonderful to reread.
0: I hope you don't have three copies of that tetralogy because that would be a lot of books. (laughs) No. Two copies. Two copies. (laughs) (laughs) All right, guys. This is going to be the final question of the night, and um, extra special because this copy of The Queen of the Night is actually the copy that Alexander Chi read from. tonight Whoa. you could fingerprint it alright that's really creepy <laughs> crime scene um, and I think this is a great one to end off our one year anniversary tonight the question is what is the best and hopefully you have an answer for this or it's sad what is the best one year anniversary present you have ever given or received <laughs> who asked this question awesome
2: awesome
0: with any kind of anniversary just to open it up. I mean, I'm blank on this one. So,
2: <laughs> One year anniversaries. Hmm. Come on guys.
0: Birthday presents? Anything you give? Soon.
3: Given or received? Yeah. Well, I lived in I lived in Japan for a while and there was a little group of us that would hang out together while I was living in Japan. And then... I, I, this might be a lie. It might be six months after I got back. I'm gonna say a, a year though. Okay. It was a year. It was a one-year anniversary gift. Fiction writer, and um, <laughs> and this little hamper arrived from Japan with like all the fresh stuff in it was inedible because it had travelled all the way from Japan. Oh yeah. <laughs> But it was things like rice balls, which are actually triangles, which have like cooked salmon in the middle. There's you've had you've had the rice ball, delicious. Um. And also Pocky, which are these sticks, which have like chocolate on the end, which I think you can get in the Met supermarket here. Just a shout out to the Met, the great supermarket. <laughs> uh, I mean, that's the, that's the best thing I've ever. That's the only thing I've ever been given by life.
2: <laughs> yeah. I, I gave my, uh, my cousin, my cousin had a, a son, Horace Birch is his name. And I gave him a uh, a fox hand puppet, um, which his father then used to get him to learn to crawl, because he loved the puppet so much. So we would hold the puppet at the end of the blanket, and then Horace would crawl, H. B. as I like to call him, would crawl towards the puppet. So that is the best gift I ever gave. I like think a real, best. real fox part or not? It looks. It looks like a a hand puppet. It doesn't really. <laughs> it's not so. I mean, it's it's a child's toy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's not taxidermy. It's okay. <laughs> I'm getting some amazing parenting tips right now.
0: Yeah. It's like put a fox on your hand and tell your child to move it. Yeah.
1: Well, for my daughter's first birthday, I wrote her a story about her birth.
0: So I guess that was oh, that's a pretty. That's awesome. Nice yeah. You're raising the bar. Yeah. <laughs> Shoot. <laughs> You guys, I want to give a round of applause to all of our readers tonight. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you Alexander Chi, Natalie Harnett, Jonathan Lee. Thank you LIC Bar for a solid year here. That's today's show. If you like what you heard, tell a friend or leave a review wherever you found us. Special thanks to LIC Bar, the Astoria Bookshop, and our amazing intern Nadine Santoro. A big thank you to our sponsors over the years. LIC Corner Cafe, Sweetleaf Coffee, Court Square Diner, and the Gantry Restaurant. This episode was recorded by Carl Jacob and mixed and edited by Justin Alvarez. Our theme music is by Pat Irwin. The LIC Reading Series is made possible in part by the Queen's Council on the Arts with public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. I'm your host, Catherine Lasota. See you next time in Queens.